two terms as president in a historically, globally, historically unprecedented move, he, he voluntarily steps down as president, uh, which the musical King George uh, of Britain, he says, uh, they say George Washington's yielding his power and stepping away. Is that true? I wasn't aware that was something a person could do. <laughs> Never. It's, I haven't been on the stage for a while, so thank you for... <laughs> a farewell address of Washington's uh, that's cited in that song. And, and Washington at that time is an old man. Well, he's an old man in the, according to the 1700s. He was 65 years old. Uh, he, was, he would die at the age of 67. 65 is not old now. Uh, father. <laughs> Sir. Uh, but after a life lived as a, f a farmer, a surveyor, the general of the Continental Army, the president of the United States, he looks back and he considers, now what is the most important thing that I could say to this infant nation? And, and, he, and in his address, he offers six pillars needed for the country, he had, according to him, to not just survive, but to thrive. Things like the need for national unity, avoiding bipartisan fighting. You know, things he ended up being way wrong about. <laughs> totally irrelevant for today. Uh, how to live freely in the nation that they had made. That everyone, as he sings, would live under their own vine and fig tree in the shade, which he's quoting the Old Testament. Teach him how to say goodbye. Now in the gospel before us, we, we likewise have an older man. John was probably writing about 80 years old at the time, and he's delivering a similar address to President Washington. And he looks over the course of his life as a fisherman, and then an apprentice to Jesus, who becomes a fisher of men, and a pastor of this new nation, a, a, a people of all tribes, tongues, and nations, the church. And he looks back, and John similarly says, what is the most important thing that I could say to you? How do God's people live freely in the new nation that Christ died to make? And what we're going to see over the next months is, according to Grandpa John here in his gospel, the most important thing he has to tell us is who the person of Jesus is. And, and, wh and what it means, why, why it's the most important thing that we could ever know, that we could ever put all of our trust in. And just like that nation hung on every word that President Washington said. I mean, over the next few decades, it became more popularly, commonly read than the Constitution itself. We would do well this morning to, to pay attention to what a man had to say who walked with Jesus for three years, who observed firsthand his life, his death, and his resurrection, and then gave the rest of his life to proclaim this message. So first of all, who was John to Jesus? Because this is the most important thing he could say to us. This morning we're going to look at the first 18 verses of John, which essentially serve as the prologue. Uh, so as I mentioned, I'm not going to have those verses on the screen. That's intentional. We want each of us in the word ourselves to teach us how to be uh, in, in communing with God in his word. So, uh, but we're going to read it. I'm going to read it to you. And out of reverence for the word of God, if you'd stand with me. If you stand with me, I'm going to read this prologue in its entirety. I would invite you to follow along in your translation of the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible on, uh, that I'll be reading from. And that's the, the translation we're going to be spending our time in John with. Um, so the Word of God says this. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from John, God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And, and next week we'll talk more about John the Baptist. He was in the world and the world was created through him. And yet the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own and his own people didn't receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, this was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. This is the word of the Lord. You have a seat. Now, two main things that I see John highlighting in this prologue about who Jesus is. First of all, that Jesus is, and we have fill in the blanks there in your, in, your, uh, sermon, in your bulletin if you want to follow along. Jesus is both the word of God and God himself. So um, the word, when you notice here out of the gates, John refers to this person as the word. Now, in the Greek, you've probably, if you've been around church, this word means, it was, was tra- in the Greek, was logos. Everybody say logos. Well done. So the logos, it meant literally, literally, it meant word, a speech, an utterance. So when I say pumpernickel, that's a logos that I said, and it's a fun one to say. Say pumpernickel. You can't say it without smiling. It's just one of those logoses. So it's, a logos is a word, but according to the Greeks, they took that, that, that definition, and they actually ran with it. And according to Greek philosophy, logos had a, had a deeper meaning. In fact, lo, where we get the word logic, okay? This was the cause, logos meant the cause or reason or force behind everything in the universe. It was basically the the thing that moved all of reality, The, the, the thing that gave life, order, and meaning. Now, they saw this as a transcendent thing, a divine thing, but it was impersonal. It was a cause or a force. Now, on the individual level, they they had a distinction here that when someone spoke uh, or, or wrote something, the logic that they used to say that thing, write that thing, was logos, but they also believed that the thing that was written or the word that was spoken embodied their very presence itself. So when I write one of my uh, heart-throbbing love notes to Jill, and she receives that, and, and her heart just flutters all over again. She reads the words in the notes, you know, and you are as beautiful as a... It's not... So she's reading... That's not for you to know. <laughs> She's reading words from me, from my own logic. So, so the words on the, on the sticky note are not me. I, I'm still here. But in a very real sense, they embody who I am and what I want to express to Jill about who I am and what I think about her. 
And, and John, so when he uses the word logos here, it's very intentional. And he knows his Greek audience. But even deeper, he knows his Hebrew audience. And so he's connecting this to the Old Testament as well. How, what are the first three words of John's gospel? In the beginning. And of course, that's how our Bible opens, right? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created. But how does it say that God created? Verse 3 of Genesis, and God said, let there be light. By his word, God created everything that exists. Now, wait a second. He says, notice here, verse 3. He says, uh, all things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. All things were created through him. Who's the him there? It's a personal pronoun. represents something. And is it the word of God that created? Or is it God himself who created? Well, I think the text is saying yes, right? What we see here is, is in the Old Testament, when, when the word of God, that's a phrase that was used often in the Old Testament as well. And it's referred to as God's powerful self-expression. In other words, this is the way he revealed himself to, to humans. And he did that both in creating, that God revealed who he is in the world that he created, but also when he redeemed that world, when he rescued that world. This was the power of the word of God as, as well. And we see this oftentimes in the Old Testament. Genesis 15 says, The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now, wait a second. Did the word, or was it just the words that God spoke came down, or did God himself come down? Again, yes. Psalm 107, he sent his word, and it healed them. He rescued them from their traps. So you see that. It's God himself who did the rescuing, but it says here it's also his word that did the healing. And what we want to see is, is a both and here. So what, what our text says is, first of all, the word was with God. Do you see that in verse 1? The word was with God. Now that word with, it can mean toward. So when you're watching a rom-com and you have the two lovers on the beach running toward each other, right? In slow motion, of course, and the hair is... They, that is a, a disposition toward each other. And that's what this is saying, that he's with God, his, his disposition is set toward God. And the word here, with, always was used, in, this, this word it was used in context relationally, often in an intimate way. So you wouldn't just say, do you want fries with that burger? That wouldn't be this expression. This is when it was a, a relationship between two people. He was with God. So right away we see a hint here that the word is a person. The word was with God. It's a personal with, a towardness. Not as the Greek thought philosophy was that it was an impersonal force behind the, the universe. But to have a relationship with God means that you have to be distinguishable from him in some way, right? Otherwise, all John would be saying is God was with God in the beginning. That would say nothing. But there's some distinction of another person who is the word that's with God. Interesting. But secondly, we also see that not just the word was with God, he then goes to say the word was God. So the word is distinguishable from God, and yet the word was not not God. The, the verb here, when he says he was with God in the beginning, that, didn't, that, doesn't, that word did not mean he came into being in the beginning. It means he existed he already existed at that point. The word wasn't created by God. In fact, what does he say here? All things were created by the word, right? Or through the word by God. And he always had been 
just as God always had been. Hmm. So, what do we see here? The word is both distinct from God, but is also God himself. Because what does the Old Testament teach us about God? The Lord is one, right? And this is, we see Trinitarian theology right here. A three in one God. Three persons and yet one God. And we see two of these persons here on the first sentence of our gospel. Now, there's a relevance to this truth, though. Look at down at verse uh, four here. So this is ultimately, when, when John is describing the word here, he is saying that, that the logos, the word of God, is God's ultimate self-disclosure. He revealed parts of himself in creation, physical creation, and in us. We are his image bearers. But the ultimate, if you really want to know what God looks like, his ultimate self-disclosure is found in a person. A person who is behind the existence of all things. And unlike the Greeks, this is not impersonal. This is the creator of all things. Now, why? Okay, that's great. But what does that mean for us today? Look at verses 4 and 5. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness. And yet the darkness did not overcome it. So what happens when you shine a light into a dark place? We had the power go out this last week. That was fun. Is it left to a mystery who wins that battle, right? If I turn a light on, if I shine a flashlight into a dark room, I'm not wondering, oh, gee, I wonder if it's going to, as long, if the batteries are in it, if it's a working light, the darkness is extinguished. This is a reference to the first creation. The Logos shone light into a world that was formless and void and dark. And what happened? When God said, let there be light, there was light, and the darkness was extinguished. But this is also a reference to new creation. Because darkness is a symbol in our, in our Bible of, of evil. And the Logos is light of redemption. Shown into a dark and dead world 2,000 years ago. And his effect was as sure as a light shining into the darkness. The people of John's day were in desperate need of light and life. And are we not today, individually and as a whole, in desperate need of light and life? in a world that is dark and dead without him. This is who John says he is. He's, he is the word of God and God himself. But then secondly, he also says he's a man. So jump down to verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've observed his glory. Glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So this word here, uh, he says the word became flesh. Now that we use the fancy term incarnation, the word carne comes from the idea of meat. So when we say we're a carnivore, it's a meat eater. That's where we get the word carne asada, grilled meat, gloria adios. <laughs> so incarnate literally means in meated, in fleshed, right? It's a way of saying, it's a beautiful way of saying, uh, that he became a human. So the, think about this. The transcendent creator God who gives light and life to everything, the word of God becomes a human being. The tra ultimate transcendent one becomes ultimately imminent with us. And now this human-made word, it says he dwelt among us. This is a beautiful phrase that John's riffing on here in the Old Testament. The word literally meant to like pitch his tent among us or to tabernacle among us. And John's given an explicit shout out to the original tabernacle that God had. We just went through Exodus this last year. 
He had the people build this tabernacle. Why did they build that? He tells them in in Exodus 25, uh, he says, they are to make a sanctuary for me. Why? Same exact expression, so that I may dwell among them. This was for relationship with God himself. The tent of meeting was a a building made before this that where God would speak with Moses, Exodus says, as one would speak with a friend. And is this not why the word came? Speak to us so that we could become the friends of God. The word dwell here, it means means residence. But more specifically, again, to the Hebrew mind, when they heard this idea, it was a reference back to the glory of God that would fill. There was this bright cloud that would settle. The word was was shakan. And so this is where we get, you may have heard the term shekinah glory. It's the glory of God that settled on the form, visible form of this cloud on the tabernacle. And it was filled with God's glory. This is what Exodus 40 says. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord settled on, filled, shakan, the tabernacle. And so this is, the, the God's glory is the visible manifestation of God himself and his beauty. So, and this is what he says here. We have seen the glory. See, God disclosed himself. And that's why we say glory. Glory is just not just an equal term to like praise. We use it like that, but that's what we're saying. I see God's glory. We shout out glory. I see my God. Glory to our God. But, but here's the rub. Verse 18. Look at down to verse 18. No one has ever seen God. Well, wait a second. It says here, no one has seen God. So how do we behold his glory? Remember back in Exodus, when Moses asks to see God's face, what does God tell him? He says, you can't see my face and live. And so he says, here, I'm going to show you my back. And that's all you can get a glimpse of. Why is that? When God's Shekinah glory settled on the tent, Moses was not allowed to enter. Look at the next verse. Why? Because God's glory was there. Moses was in the dark as a sinner. The point is, for sinful man to see God necessarily brings death. Why? What did it say in verse 5? When the light shines in the darkness, the darkness can't deal with it, right? It extinguishes the dark, So God's holy flashlight in my face means the end of my face, right? Ka-chow! That's what I've been saying to Lucy. She just giggles. I know. Like, it's God's glory. It's God's glory. (laughs) Dark and light can't dwell together, right? Physically and spiritually. So this is why. Look down at verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth through Jesus. So God, through Moses, he gives Israel his what? His word, his instruction, his teaching. That's what the word Torah or law means. And why did he give it to them? So that he could dwell with them. That this is the way you live. And if you live this way in the light, then I dwell with you. I will be your God and you will be my people. But we know the story. They don't do that. With their sinful hearts, they can't walk in the light. They were unable to listen and obey his word. And so they're walking in darkness and they cannot dwell with their God. And that's why God promised to send his anointed one. His his chosen one, a rescuing king that the Old Testament calls Messiah. And this Messiah was going to come and do for them what they could not do for themselves. And so, interestingly, here for the first time in our prologue, you notice he's just been calling him the word. 
But it's the, for the first time here, all the way down in verse 17, he names the word. He says, grace and truth, which we needed because we couldn't come to God ourselves, came through who? Jesus Christ. And Christ is not his last name. Christ is the Greek word, Christos, which was the Greek expression for Messiah. Jesus was the coming, sent, anointed one, our rescuing king. Hallelujah. And in verse 18, it says, it says this, No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. It says the Son, notice here, the Son is at the Father's side. Uh, that was an expression, an idiom, that you could say he was in the bosom of the Father. This is the same expression. Remember the Last Supper when John, the apostle, our author here, is leaning on Jesus? That's the same thing it says there, that John was lying on the bosom of Christ himself. This is, and how many of you would, would like me to stop saying bosom now? Was that, okay. It, it conveyed intimacy, a, a mutual love, a relational knowledge. That's why, did you notice here he says his one and only son? So what it's conveying is the intimacy, and I'm so excited, Gospel of John shows us this so vividly, the, relation, the intimate relationship between the Father God and God the Son. And we're going to see this, and, and that the idea then is, is through Jesus, look at how this, this prologue ends, he, the word, Jesus Christ, has revealed God. Jesus is God incarnate made visible to us. Jesus broke the barrier that made it possible for us to see God. And not just like look at him, but to have intimate life with him as our father too. And this is kind of the, the way he, he establishes his point. Remember last week Ross talked about the chiasms. Well, he envelopes this prologue with the exact same thoughts. He just words it differently. So at the beginning when he said the word was with God, what does he say down here? He's at the father's side. He's with him. He's toward him. He's an intimate relationship in the Father's bosom. Then he says he also was God. And here at the end, he says he is God himself. Jesus is the deity. And we need him to be both. We need him to be transcendent and imminent. God and man for the gospel to work. And then he says no one's ever seen God, but it's through this God-man, the word made flesh, that he has revealed himself to us. And the only way to see God, the only way to experience that kind of father-son intimacy is through the word that dwelled among us. And the rest of John's gospel, the rest of what we're going to read for the next 21 chapters is the story of how that happened. The most important thing to John was who Jesus is. But why is that the most important thing to us? Why do we need today, 2,000 years later, to hear the story of this rescuing king? Well, it's because, brothers and sisters, we need rescued. And it's because we need a king. D.A. Carson wrote a 700-page book on John's gospel, and this summer, because I had time on my hands, I read every single page. So to, to uh, justify that reading, I'm going to quote him a lot, okay? <laughs> Carson believes that John wrote his gospel somewhere between 80 and 95 A.D. So to give us a timeline where we're at, Jesus rose from the dead around A.D. 30, which means the young church is about 50 or 60 years old at the time, and it's rippling through the Roman Empire. However, remember back in the Old Testament, the Jews were exiled by Assyria and Babylon. They're scattered all over the place. So right now, there are not just Jewish people in Israel, but they're actually scattered all throughout the known world. 
These were called the diaspora, or the dispersed Jews from the exiles that had never come back to national geographic Israel. There are also those who had converted to Judaism, who followed the law, who placed their faith in Yahweh. They were called proselytes. These were Gentile converts. So these people were, were all over the Roman Empire, and either, this is before Twitter, Either they had not yet heard that Jesus was the Messiah or they had failed to be convinced or to believe that he was the Messiah. And based on a lot of reasons that we do not have time for this morning, Carson believes this is actually probably John's primary audience. It's for us today, of course. But his, when he was writing it, this is who he had in mind, which can be helpful as we read it. These were people who were painfully aware of the Old Testament. That they knew the law, they knew Yahweh, they knew his promises, they knew the coming Messiah, but they had failed to connect the dots and see that Jesus was the Christ. That Jesus was the rescuing king that the entire Old Testament had pointed to. And I want to put my cards on the table here this morning. My fear is likewise in this room today. We have many who are familiar with the Bible. Maybe you grew up in church, you're one of the flannel graph all-stars out there. That you would check the box as Christian. That you believe in God, you believe in, in Jesus. But how many have, have likewise failed to let this book lead us to a living relationship with Jesus himself? With the rescuing king. What it means to know Jesus, to follow Jesus, to live in Jesus. Like how many of you would say this morning, Jesus is my life. He is my, what are we saying about the king of my heart? He's my joy. He's the wind in my sails. Like, Jesus is my everything. I look to him as my king on a daily basis. I cry out to him as my rescuer. Like, listen, listen to me. There is nothing that I want more. Like, I love that you're here. But there's nothing that I want more for you than to really, actually find life in Jesus. To find the intimate joy that comes from being in the bosom of the Father with Christ. Paul says the rest is dung. And John says, this is why I'm writing this letter. He gives us the purpose in the second to last chapter. John 20, 31. Remember what Ross said last week. If the author himself says, this is the way I'm writing, we need to dial in. He says this, but these are written. All the things that I just told you about Jesus. These things are written. Why? So that. You may have, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, here's my concern. We, we hear these words like Charlie Brown adults. Wah, 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 wah. I heard that a million times, right? And we stick them into our mental categories that I think might need challenged and corrected. See, we, we talk about believing, but a lot of times we just think of that as mental assent. I've checked the box and converted to Christianity. We're going to see that is not what believing means according to the Gospel of John. That is an active, growing trust of what it means to learn to, to know who Jesus is and then push all of our life chips in on who he is to us and for us. Life doesn't just mean that I don't have to go to hell when I die. It doesn't just mean I get to go to a place called heaven. Life, according to John, is, is not just living forever, like quantity. Everybody is going to live forever. Life is a quality. 
and how he's going to define it is it is a connectedness, an intimate connectedness with the Father God and Jesus, his son. Now and forever. And what John says right here in this prologue, and then is going to unpack for the next 21 chapters, is this God-man, the word made flesh, is the only way to access that. It's the only way to dwell with our God in an active, daily relationship. It's the only way for our darkness to be penetrated by light. The only way for the walking dead to be made live, reconnected to him. And notice what he says in, in verse 10. Look back up at verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. God himself comes to his creation and says they don't recognize him. But then even worse, verse 11. He came to his own. That's the Jewish people. And his own people did not receive him. That's a nice way of saying they rejected him and then killed him on a cross. See, this is so urgent for us today because throughout human history, the vast majority of of God's own people have rejected him. And and that, that is no exception to our community here today. But he says, but, but... To those who have ears, verse 12, to all who did receive him, he gave, he gifted. They couldn't earn this. He gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name. Like we get to have the same relationship with God, that his, the word of God, the son of God did. Who were born not of natural descent or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. And we'll talk about that more as we go. Every single detail of this gospel is pointing to Jesus. Namely, his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation as the rescuing king of the earth. And the urgency of this true faith in light of those truths. And and D.A. Carson said nothing is going to distract or deter John from pressing into that point. Our, Our author here is a dog on a bone. And he wants us to come to terms with the most important thing in the universe, and that's who Jesus is. The founding father, George Washington, in his address, he showed a concern, not just for people to convert to become an American, not just on a form that they would check that's where they live. He wanted people to experience the fullness of of what they, in their minds, had just won through the Revolutionary War, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. How to live as an American citizen in the new nation they had made. How to live free from tyranny. How to live free from taxation without representation. But then positively, how to, how to farm. How to, how to explore. How to build communities as free men and women in this new nation. Likewise here, John's not just interested in converts. People who would check Christian in the religion box of a tax form. John wants you and me to experience the fullness of the light and life that come through dwelling with God through the logos. Freedom from the tyranny of sin and death and free to positively love God and live in community and experience the joy and the peace at work, at home, that comes life in Jesus' name. And that's why we're going to, the subtitle of this series theme through John is Belief in Christ for Life. And my fear is that many in this room are going to check out and say, yeah, I'm already in. I believe that. Check. But the way that you actually live your life flies in the face of that claim. Now, I don't say that to condemn you. I actually say that because I love you. And to love someone is to will their best. 
to will, to desire their best. And your best is the Logos himself. And it's only in his life that you're going to find light in your darkness. It's only in his life that you're going to find life in your death. So are we gonna, we're going to slow down, and through Easter, we're going to see Jesus in this gospel as revealed so that we might believe and have life in his name because Grandpa John, who knew Jesus personally and intimately, says that's the most important thing that you and I could know too. And if you close your eyes for a second, if you're able to, I just want to uh, just kind of help quiet your heart. I want us to do some heart work. I can't do this for you. I have to do it too, by the way. Like I'm preaching to myself here. We need to quiet your heart before your God and and ask some questions. Take stock, because it doesn't matter what I believe for you. It doesn't matter what your neighbor, your spouse believes for you. This is between you and him. ask, Ask yourself before your God, where are you looking for meaning? Where are you looking for order and purpose in your life? Are you ultimately trying to find it in your job, in the relationship to another person, some kind of self-medication in, in your possessions. Let me just gently ask you, is that working? Like, are you actually finding joy in that? Are you finding peace and love in those things? And I just want to leave a little bit of space here for some repentance. That means to change our minds, to turn from maybe some of those idols and say, I don't even know fully right now what it looks like, God, but I want to find ultimate purpose and order and meaning and joy and love and life and peace in Jesus himself. Take a moment with your God. Father, we thank you for sending your word to us. Who was with you since the beginning, who is you, and yet became flesh so that we could access, so that you could actually hear the words that I'm saying right now. Father, my prayer is for every man, woman, and child in this room today that they would come to know this Jesus, to place all of their trust chips in on him as life and light. And that through that belief, they might experience the fullness of a life of joy in his name. Would you use your word, this gospel, to do the work in and through us that only you can do. Pray these things in the beautiful, wonderful, powerful name of the Logos, the word made flesh himself, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said.